colors, my life would be easy. Ministry would be easier. Preparing my son for the world would be easier. But alas, that's not how the world works. We need wisdom and insight to know whom we should trust and whom we should keep a healthy distance. Now, as David continues his retreat from his treacherous son, Absalom, who seeks the throne of Israel in Jerusalem, we see him needing shrewdness to deal with various individuals he meets. The servants of the king need judgment as well. And look at us. We need it too. With bearing the cross and doing this journey and following our Savior, And as we sang earlier, human hearts and looks deceive me. But thankfully, God is not like them. He is the God of wisdom who has given us his word. And let's continue to follow David as he is now just past the summit of Mount Olives. And we're at 2 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 16. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said, thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life? How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse? For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. 
Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched the tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. There are three scenes in this chapter. In two of them, we follow David fleeing Jerusalem. In one, Absalom arrives in Jerusalem. Yet really, everything here relates to David because he's the main point of contention. In particular, when it comes to three key characters, Ziba, Shimei, and Ahithophel, their fates are determined by how each relates to the true king of Israel. And relevant to us as saints, we must be wary of three enemies of faith. First, discern the opportunistic liar. That's verses 1 to 4. Discern the opportunistic liar. Second, endure the hostile persecutor. Endure the hostile persecutor. That's verses 5 to 14. Thirdly, beware of the vengeful advisor. Beware of the vengeful advisor. That's verses 15 to 23, the rest of the chapter. First, discern the opportunistic liar. You can tell right away how I feel about Ziba, but let me rewind and review his background a bit. We first met Ziba back in chapter 9. He's a servant of Saul's house. Though he was under Saul's authority, it appears he's at the highest rank among the servants. He himself had 20 servants that worked for him and his 15 sons. So Ziba enjoyed great privilege and position, perhaps similar to Eleazar of Damascus in Abraham's house. Ziba was instrumental in helping David locate Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son who's lame in his feet. Because of David's promise to Jonathan, before Jonathan passed away, to show kindness to his house, chapter 9 ended with Mephibosheth in Jerusalem, eating continually at the king's table. Ziba was assigned to serve this lame man, and we haven't heard any updates from Ziba and Mephibosheth since then. But here's Ziba now, without his master. 
David must have trusted in his report because he hands over to him all that belongs to Mephibosheth. It would have been wise for the king to wait, hear both sides. That's just good jurisprudence, as Proverbs 18, 17 says. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Well, even if David was a bit hasty, we can, in hindsight, play the detective. Is Ziba lying about Mephibosheth? Or is he not? If you believe Ziba, you might make the case that the last person to bring David 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisin, and some wine was the Bible quiz Abigail back in 1 Samuel 25. There's some interesting parallels. Both acted decisively and quickly to secure David's favor. Both had to maneuver around their authorities. Both anticipated where David would be, brought him lavish gifts, and bowed down before him. Both were rewarded. I mean, it doesn't hurt for Ziba to act like Abigail. As the narrator says, he's, she's a woman of good understanding. But again, if you're like me, you think Ziba's an opportunist and lying about his master's son. Here's how I'd support my view. I have three suspicions concerning Ziba. First, why is he all by himself in today's passage? Where are his sons and servants? That seems a bit odd. For the second suspicion, I need to fast forward to chapter 19. We'll get there eventually, but if you want to follow along, there, David's returning to Jerusalem after defeating Absalom. Sorry about the spoiler, but that's what happens later. If you follow me there, locate verse 17 in chapter 19. Notice how Ziba hasn't been with David during his battles. We know he wasn't acting as a spy for him either. Instead, he's among the fickle masses. That includes Shimei. Strange company to keep. And here's a third suspicion. It arises out of Mephibosheth's side of the story and will stay in chapter 19 and look at verses 24 to 30. It says there, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes, for all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. I'll have more to say about Mephibosheth later, but for now, I look at his mournful, disheveled appearance, the more plausible explanation for his absence, his trust in David's judgment, his joy at the king's return, Apathy about the wealth, and I lean towards believing him over Ziba. But 
whether you side with Ziba or Mephibosheth, we can all agree that David's facing somebody who's an opportunistic liar. He just needs to discern who. And many times in life, so do we. You know, these days with so much information online, you can not only hide your motives, you can fool people on your appearance. We need discernment more than ever. I'm not big on social media, but as some of you know, I did meet E-Ray, my wife, online. So. But she had to practice real discernment with me, and it helped that my, we had a mutual friend who's a pastor. It was her pastor, actually, so... Anyways, we have new challenges in a changing world, but we're thankful that God's word does not change. The principles are the same, and through it, we can recognize those who are opportunists and those who are liars. Also, as a further application, as it relates to the gospel, we need to humbly acknowledge that we, too, can be opportunistic liars. The Bible warns both the unbeliever and the believer. In the context of the final judgment in Romans 2a, Paul condemns unbelievers, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. But also in the context of church life, Paul writes in Philippians 1.16 concerning those who preach Christ from selfish ambition. It's interesting that they're gospel preachers who are selfish. He goes on to warn believers in general, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit in chapter 2, verse 3. In another book, James also warns that bitter envy and self-seeking in our hearts lead to boasting and lying in James 3. Back to Paul, who tells us that in the church, we must put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with this neighbor, for we are members of one another. In Ephesians 4, 25. Now to those who are among the unbelievers. Have you admitted before God that you've been selfish and you've lied? If you're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, you can't stop being opportunistic liars. It's part of our identity. The Lord asks in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the leopard change its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. The Bible goes on to tell us the consequences of such evil, that all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Also those with selfish ambitions, as Galatians 5 says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This should concern you. How do you change your identity so radically that you may enter heaven? Jesus said that most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And to be born again, you must believe in Jesus, God who came down from heaven to earth as man, He's God's Son, the only begotten of God the Father, full of grace and truth. He did not come as an opportunist. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
a ransom for many. And that ransom was paid at the cross when Jesus declared it is finished. Though he was perfect and sinless, he took the punishment for our sins. We deserve hell. But Jesus is willing to take us to the Father. That way was made through his sacrifice. He rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. He'll expose the secrets of men, the thoughts and intention of the heart, every idle word that we speak. So there's no hiding from God. Come clean and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Repent, turn from sin, put away deceptions, reject self-righteousness and selfishness. Here's a better purpose for life. Our Lord died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Trust in Jesus and no other. You can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, I want to be clear as we get back to the sermon passage. Once we make that decision to follow Jesus, we'll face all kinds of trials in this world. Life here on earth doesn't get necessarily easier as we're not home yet. In 2 Samuel 16, 5 to 14, we see what typically happens to saints who commit to the Lord's anointed. We learn that we must endure the hostile persecutor. In verse 5, David arrives in Bahurim, not far past the Mount of Olives, towards the uh, Jordan River. He's probably still processing the information that he has just received during the ascent and the descent. It hurts. Ahithophel and Mephibosheth were men with whom David shared friendships, meals, conversation, times of worship. The pain he's about to experience next is of a different kind. We're not given much background on Shimei, but here are the essentials. Like Mephibosheth, he's a man from the family of the house of Saul. Gera is a tribal name within Benjamin, so it's not necessarily Shimei's father. More importantly, he represents those who never got over the fact that David took Saul's place. I imagine Shimei is like one of those drunk fans at sporting events, shouting obscenities and throwing food and drinks on the opposing team as they make their way to the locker room. It's worse than that, though. Instead of hot dogs and soft drinks, he's hurling hot takes and hard rocks. And in case you missed it, he's cursing David a lot. The narrator keeps reminding us to calling him names, a man without word, a man of blood, saying he's getting what he deserves. This is slander if there ever was one. David's done nothing but treat the house of Saul with respect and restraint. He continues that noble conduct with Shimei. Now Abishai, David's nephew, has other ideas. This guy was there in 1 Samuel 26 when Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah and was sound asleep with all his men at night. Recall that Abishai wanted to strike Saul with Saul's own spear. He wanted to do it so badly, but 
David would not permit it. Saul was still the Lord's anointed. Shimei, however, is a dead dog in Abishai's sight, so this soldier thinks the king of Israel shall be more like the queen of hearts, off with his head. Abishai, Joab's brother, must have agreed. Now David's response is exemplary for us. He teaches us how to endure the hostile persecutor. He rebukes his nephews. They can't see the big picture like the king does. Without excusing Shimei's behavior, David considers how God is ultimately sovereign over all of our troubles. He may even use persecutors for our discipline. Besides, if he's being pursued by his own flesh and blood, surely he'll have trouble with rival tribal members. And by persevering through this bad day, there will be a payday from God someday. As our Lord Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But even as we endure and look forward to that day, God in his providence gives us temporal rest in the present. That's what we see in verse 14 in David's journey. We often find the same in our own journey. We're going to leave David for now to turn our attention back to Jerusalem, but let's stop for some application here. As much as David's a great example of enduring the hostile persecutor, of course, Jesus is better. He's not, he has not only taught us this truth, he lived it. He not only demanded that we love our enemies and bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. He did himself what he asks of us. As Peter attests in 1 Peter 2.23, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Christ's endurance is the model for us in this fallen world. That's how we can go beyond merely gritting our teeth, being a stoic or a tough guy. That's why we can pray beyond the borders of our circles of close family members and best friends and our favorite coworkers. We can even pray for that annoying person that gets on your nerves. Maybe you got someone in your head right now. God help us, right? <laughs> you know who they are. And that's probably closest to a hostile persecutor most of us will ever get to, but at least we can start with them, pray for them, bear with them, endure the things they do. Now consider the imperatives of Romans 12, 17 to 21 through this week, how you can overcome evil with good. Now about that, as we talk about who's shy next, I have to admit, I had to wrestle with this basic idea of overcoming evil with good. I rushed past the topic last time, but I can't do that anymore. We have to pause and ask, can you be a faithful saint of God and a good government spy? Well, I went down this rabbit hole this week, and 
looked at a wide range of opinions from John LeCar in MI6, James Olson in CIA, just war theory, just intelligence theory, Soren Kierkegaard, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Augustine, Aquinas. I would have stayed in that rabbit hole, would have gone down deeper, but I was like, oh yeah, I need to prepare a sermon. So I could only emerge with just a handful of thoughts. As if like, I had like 10 minutes for a shopping spree at a local grocery store. Maybe this can be a, like a Sunday school topic or something. For now, I'll just make a few comments. I found in my reading there's often talk about motives of charity or faith, that how they sort of justify deception. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel better saying the following, even if I sound a bit idealistic. And I say this with zero practical experience as a spy. Um, there is an art of concealing motives that does not transgress God's law, does not harm others, and does not violate the conscience. Again, there is an art of concealing motives that does not transgress God's law, does not harm others, does not violate the conscience. So when it comes to speech, even while we condemn lying and promise-breaking, we don't necessarily condemn all concealing of information. We do that all the time as parents with children, bosses with employees, government with civilians. And as hard as it may be, there's got to be a tactful and godly approach to intelligence and speech. And The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, as it says in Proverbs 15, too. Of course, there's only one being in flesh who has never stumbled in word. That's Jesus. So if Jesus was a spy rather than a carpenter, he would have been perfect, both in competence and in character. I can't imagine it, but he would have done it. But alas, we're not Jesus, and Jesus wasn't a spy. So anyway, in a practical conclusion, I think that you can be a spy and a Christian, but I suppose it depends on whether that requires flatly lying, it depends on various other things. So again, I did not pretend to solve this problem, something that has stumped a lot of people. Okay, so I hope that covers just enough material on this topic to move forward with Hushai's covert operations. We don't have to expect them to be a perfect spy. Nonetheless, he's a spy on the side of good. On the other side of evil, we have Ahithophel, the vengeful advisor. We must be aware of those like him. Now, we discussed Ahithophel and Hushai last time. Ahithophel's from Gilo, not too far from Hebron. He was a key official in David's course. His betrayal was probably motivated by David's sin against Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. Recall that Ahithophel is the father of Eliam, and Eliam is the father of Bathsheba. You can see that in 2 Samuel 11.3 and 23.34. It's likely that Ahithophel never forgave David for the disgrace he brought to his granddaughter's family. His defection to Absalom was a major blow to David's fortunes. And you see why in verse 23 of today's passage. But then we also saw that not too long after David hears this news of betrayal, God sends him Hushai. 
Hushai is one of the archites from Atarot on the border between Ephraim and Benjamin. He's a wise guy himself, though not on the same level of reputation as Ahithophel. But still, Hushai is dispatched to Jerusalem, and he'll work as a secret agent, and he has his work cut off for him. And that's what we saw at the conclusion of chapter 15. Now verse 15 in today's passage picks up, picks up where we left off. Absalom arrives in Jerusalem with Hebron, from Hebron with his men. Soon after Hushai arrives from Mount of Olives, at first Absalom suspicious of Hushai, questioning his disloyalty. I find that laughable because he should look in the mirror. He's a son betraying his father. Also, he already has one advisor who turned away from David. Why not add one more? But it still takes time for Absalom to warm up to Hushai, to even ask him for advice. After all, Hushai was well known as the friend of the king. It seems like a title that was informal at first, but ended up being official later in the monarchy. But for now, as you see in verse 20, David's son leans on Ahithophel and his word. Now, Ahithophel's counsel here is disturbing, to say the least. The advice is self-serving as it's both vindictive and protective. It's vindictive in that Ahithophel wanted to avenge his granddaughter's daughter Bathsheba by having Absalom commit sexual immorality with David's concubines. Is also protective in that Absalom is pushed far past the point of no return. You see, Ahithophel needs the people and Absalom's army to be 100%, 100% committed to the cause of defeating David. Otherwise, if Absalom loses, that's the end for Ahithophel. In response, Absalom has no scruples, no pangs of conscience as he follows the advice. In fact, the, principal, uh, the prince makes a spectacle of it so that the Israelites not only hear but see Absalom's total break with his father. It's possible that Ahithophel and Absalom chose the top of the house for this depravity because that's where David saw Bathsheba baiting back in 2 Samuel 11 too. Whether they realize it or not, this evil plan fulfills the prediction of the Lord spoken through prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 12. Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. But even though this was predicted by God, Ahithophel and Absalom cannot be excused. We learn from this sad moment in history that we must beware of the vengeful advisor. I'm sure that the news of this great sin would further break David's heart as his former advisor and son team up to disgrace him piling on one after another, bad news after bad news. Maybe you can relate to that. And if so, where do you turn when friends betray you, persecutors pelt you, 
dubious characters flatter you. Just seems too much, too much to bear. We saw in the previous chapter how David prayed for help and worshiped God. In his presence is where you'll find rest to continue in this journey. As the scriptures say, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. This promise is available through the gospel. Let's remind ourselves of this truth as we sing our next song. Afflict the saint to Christ draw near. Your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word you can believe that as your days your strength shall be. Let's pray.